What a terrific opportunity and a great blessing it is that each of us have this afternoon to come together like this, to blend our voices together in joyful harmony, to praise and laud the great name of God and so many of the wonderful truths of Christianity. As we already had opportunity this morning and now yet again today, our God certainly is so great and so loving and so worthy of our respect and adoration. And tonight, as you perhaps have noted in the bulletin as well again as the wall to my left, you can tell that we'll be looking somewhat interestingly at the book of John this evening. And in fact, some introductory thoughts along that line might well set the stage, perhaps not in any strange or unexpected way, but will set the stage as to why that choice and selection was made for, for the lesson this evening. As the Holy Scriptures encourage our interest in and study of the Word of God, it does so in so many varied passages and so many wonderful ways. For wasn't the congregation in Berea so highly encouraged and complimented when it was said of them that these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily, whether those things were so? Verse 11 of Acts 17. Thus, when you and I approach the sacred scriptures and serve beneath the banner of Psalm 119, verse 160, thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. That then leads us to see that the book of John, in the matters which it pertains and what it sets forth, reminds us of the importance of searching. That means examining, looking carefully, opening the scriptures and investing the necessary time to appropriate, to glean, and to apply the things that we discover therein. But when one comes to the book of John, as perhaps we each know by now after Jeff's announcement very recently to us, the book of John is the one that will be discussed in the Bible Bowl, and their questions will be extracted and drawn from that book. And much as we did last summer, when we studied in detail the book of 2 Samuel for a number of Sunday evenings, we will, starting tonight, turn our attention to the book of John, the gospel according to John, for the next several weeks as we strive to look carefully, interestingly, and so beautifully at this fourth gospel account. Quite likely, we will be behind where Jeff will be in his studying, but nonetheless, it would be my hope that the things we discuss and learn will be beneficial to all of us, including those youngsters that will be participating in that Bible Bowl. And you and I, as youngsters at heart, will also, I'm certain, be able to benefit greatly from a study of the book of John. Tonight, as you might have noted in that title, we will look at an overview as well as an introduction to the book. And as we do that, it of course will set the stage for the 20 chapters that are going to follow the one we look at this evening. And as we look at the expansiveness of the book of John, I think we each will be rather impressed and perhaps a little bit interested to see how it is co contrasted to some of the other books that are the gospel accounts. As you might appreciate then in the next screen, as we begin the study of the book of John, I thought it wise to first of all look at some overview considerations. Placing this book amongst the 27 New Testament books and striving to appreciate the place that it serves, which admittedly is a bit unique, but nonetheless is something that we would do well to etch in our mind for it will make our appreciation of and comprehension of the book a little bit better. The four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament, they absolutely present to us the greatest life ever lived. 
They, in fact, extol the greatness of the life of Jesus, the teachings that he presented, the miracles that he performed, the way in which he interacted with others, and the clarion message that he was the Son of God and that he came for the redemption of the human family. As those four books set forth that message, it certainly would be good for us to realize four books were chosen by the Holy Spirit to emphasize the greatness of that life from slightly different perspectives indeed, but all of them meshed together to provide one inescapable and powerful record of the greatest life ever to have been lived. In fact, some of the things that you and I can quickly see about Matthew, Mark, and Luke would be this. And that'll help us see how John is a little bit unique and different. Matthew, in its original autograph, seems to have been written for the grand benefit of those of Jewish nationality, those that were of Hebrew extraction. So often, Matthew quotes directly from the Old Testament and uses that as a powerful peg and hinge to assert the nature of Jesus and the greatness of his teaching and life. The kingdom is exalted in marvelous ways in that book, for isn't it told to us in that book, Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. When we come to Mark, the thrust of that book slightly different. It too highlights the life of Christ, but it does so by emphasizing the immediate and powerful character of his actions. Mark was written for the benefit of the Roman. The Roman was an individual who was a person who liked to get to the point. He wasn't one so likely that one would enter into a discussion of on great theological concepts. The Roman liked action, being to the point, and so Mark is the shortest of the gospel accounts. And in that book, one quickly appreciates 42 times Mark's usage of the word immediately. How Christ performed things quickly, immediately, and it was the absolute will of heaven. When we come to Luke, we see yet a slightly different angle. Luke, we find, written originally for the Greek. And as we read the 24 chapters of Luke, we readily appreciate that Jesus is presented as the ideal specimen of manhood. The Greeks, of course, we remember, were those who thought that their society was by far the best. They thought that if they could turn every person into a Greek, the world would be a utopian place. In Luke 2.52, we readily read concerning Jesus. He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He was perfect in every way. And Luke presents him to us that fashion. But when we come to John, who was John written for? And what purpose did it serve in the ancient representation of the Holy Scriptures? We might, of course, see how blessed we are that though Matthew, Mark, and Luke were originally written perhaps for these separate nationalities, today we all benefit from their presentation. And when we come to the book of John, isn't it amazing that it wasn't written for any specific nationality or group? It was written for all mankind. And it presents the absolute divinity of Christ, holds him up as the greatest of all, and in fact equates him on so many occasions with God himself. Higher than anything earth has to offer, you see. As one looks then at the name that is sometimes given to the first three of the gospel accounts, they oftentimes are called the synoptic gospel accounts. And just so that there's no misunderstanding, I went ahead and defined that word synoptic for us. That word simply means presenting or taking the same or common view. 
there seem to be a number of similarities between the three gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There seems to be far less similarity between any of them and John. Maybe that alone would be a good question. What are some of those distinctions? What are some of those distinguishing characteristics? Let's briefly note some of them if we might. First of all, the gospel according to John was written much later than either Matthew, Mark, or Luke. In fact, it would seem by on the order of 30 years later than any one of the other three gospel accounts. And not only that, it was written by the aged Apostle John for the express purpose of addressing some of the heresies and the false teachings that had arisen and that, in fact, brought great danger to the truth of Christianity and would have wrecked the faith of so many individuals. Those ideas, perhaps, can be illustrated by those last two comments there, as well as the first one that appears on this next slide. One of the most beautiful statements, and also the most penetrating, is found near the close of the book of John as it relates to this book. In John 20, verses 30 and 31, Jesus himself made the statement that these things are written, why John? That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Thus, John expressly stated why he wrote these by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it was to assert the truth of Christ, and so that all of us might have life through his name. As that particular purpose or mission statement for the gospel according to John is given, it only leads us to highlight a few of the other distinguishing characteristics of this book. One of the most unusual might well be this one. Even though there are roughly 30, perhaps a few more parables recorded in the New Testament, parables that Jesus uttered and taught, the book of John has not a single one of them. John does not present any parables. In addition to that, note the miracles, if you will. Again, the New Testament records roughly 40 miracles performed by Jesus. John records relatively few, only about 8 out of a total of 40. As we can see, the miracles and the parables were not the principal means chosen by John as led by the Spirit for the recording of the truth contained in this book. Rather, there was, as you can see, another medium or vehicle in which the truth was presented. Sermons, episodes, and discourses seem to play a much more noticeable role in John than they do Matthew, Mark, or Luke. I've listed for you a whole host of specific chapter references, and many of them might well quickly be able to come to mind to you. When we mention sermons or discourses, John chose to record lengthy conversations that Jesus had with various and sundry individuals. For example, in chapter 3, a lengthy discussion with a man named Nicodemus. In chapter 4, a discussion that consumes about 40 verses with a woman at Jacob's well in Samaria. In chapter 5, a lengthy discussion between Jesus and a group of Pharisees. Notice further, as you can perhaps see, we'll not quickly highlight all of those references, but in chapter 8, a discussion with a, a woman that had been called in adultery. In chapter 9, a lengthy presentation in which a man that was born blind was in fact able to come before Jesus and Jesus ultimately healed that man of that blindness. 
in chapter 11, a lengthy and interesting episode where Lazarus is raised from the dead. In chapters 13 through 16, we find Jesus discussing with his disciples, the apostles, if you will, the night before he was crucified, and some of the most touching and tender episodes are found as Jesus interacted with them and encouraged them to appreciate the greatness of what was to happen the next morning. As the book of John presents all of those things to us, it would certainly be entirely fair to notice the focal point of the book of John. And this, by the way, addresses directly some of those heresies. Though that would be a bit of a digression for us, some of the false teachings that had arisen and which John's gospel was addressed to correct had to do with the nature of Christ in the flesh. Did he literally live in the flesh? There were some who said that he didn't. John's gospel account, in fact, testifies just the opposite. He was here in the flesh. He did live as a human being, but a perfect one, admittedly. And he did go in the flesh to the cross, where he gave his life a sacrifice for human sin. When we notice, though, how John emphasizes that in one great way, it's somewhat interesting that of the 21 chapters in the book of John, a full 38% of the book cast the spotlight on the last 24 hours of his life. Isn't that amazing? Out of this whole book, chapters 13 and on to 21 focus the attention on the very last hours of the Lord's life. It's clear to see that that was going to refute whatever false teachings that some may have derived or come up with. With those kind of emphases on the book of John, in its 21 chapters, we readily find 879 verses. And as we consider the presentation of them, we might want to go ahead and memorize or put away two very key verses. Perhaps it would be well to say two seem to rise to the top. One of them was the lesson text read for us this evening. Again, taking place on the very night before he was crucified, the Lord said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. A very exclusive pathway to glory. Only through Christ can one reach the Father. Only through Christ may one reach heaven. But notice he also said he was the way. He's the thoroughfare that leads one there. Furthermore, he's the truth. If one wishes to find the truth, there is literally only one repository for it. Jesus said, I am the truth. Though men in their scholarly considerations may have thought that they would have devised any number of alternate pathways to truth, it never has been so. Jesus is the exclusive truth. And furthermore, as if he went on to say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Spiritual life only to be found in him. And John's gospel account presents that very idea. A corollary to that one may perhaps be the verse associated sometimes and it's called the golden text of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In fact, housed in that conversation, the Lord had the Nicodemus in John the third chapter. Both of those verses, I would encourage all of us to commit to memory if we haven't already, for they are such beautiful texts reminding us of the central core and thrust of the book of John and to some extent also about the greatness of this book compared to the other New Testament ones. 
We mentioned earlier that this book highlights the divinity of Jesus, holds him up as the deity which he is, and some of the verses that in fact set that forth. We will notice time and again in our series of studies. But it's also a rather interesting thing to see that the book of John also highlights the Lord's personal interest in each and every person. We do know, I'm sure, that Christ loves the church. He gave himself for it. His blood purchased it. But God and Christ as well love more than just you and I as a collective body. They love you individually and me individually. The very hairs of your head are numbered, we're told in Matthew chapter 10. Inasmuch as each and every one of us are known individually, this book somewhat highlights that idea. I've listed some passages, again, brief chapter references. We noted earlier Jesus took the time to talk even late at night to a man named Nicodemus. In chapter 4, he took the time to talk with a woman. Not just a woman, a Samaritan woman at a well in Samaria. The Lord considered her important enough. Her sin-sick soul needed salvation. He took the time to speak with her. In chapter 8, when that lady was brought to him in adultery, the Lord took the time to address her case and to speak with her. You see, this book highlights the fact the Lord loves you and me individually. He cares about our state, our estate, our present position before Him, and He wants each of us to be saved. And thus, as we study this book, I hope all of us will come to see just how much the Lord loves each of us, highlighted again by these conversations and these episodes as they appear in the Gospel according to John. With these concepts presented, our overview, in fact, now turns into what we might state to be the first textual considerations as we begin to look at the book itself. We'll begin in chapter number 1, and the first 18 verses of the book in some way form a prologue to it. In essence, these are introductory verses with introductory concepts, and they form the basis for the remaining chapters that will follow. It's much in way like the book of Revelation, isn't it? When we studied the Revelation, we learned that chapter 1 was a very powerful and amazing introduction to that book and that the 21 chapters that followed it were built directly on the power and characteristic of that book. So it remains in a way when we come to the book of John. In fact, the opening five verses of this book are something that truly have been recognized as a highlight to the eternality of Jesus. That is to say, his eternal nature and the fact he is on an equal footing with God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. That's the open Greek paragraph in the book of John. We can perhaps notice the interesting comparison to the way Genesis begins. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Lifting the Lord to the highest plane of equality with God the Father, and asserting that this one is here recognized and called the Logos, the Word. 
that, of course, reminds us something of what we had seen in John 14, 6, doesn't it? In the sense that God's Word presents truth, God's Word highlights that which is genuine and real and uncompromisable, at least if it's remaining in the truth. So too it is with Jesus. He presents the absolute truth of God. He presents the greatness of God and that which is the absolute character of God Himself. No wonder later in this very book, in John 14, 9, Jesus will say, You've seen me, you've seen the Father. When you and I desire thus to come to know God, one of the ways, of course, that we can most readily approach that is to study with great care the life of Christ. For again, the Lord said, If you have seen me, then you have seen the Father. I've listed some scripture references for you to consider that might shed a bit of additional light on the Lord being called the Logos or the Word. In Matthew 17, verse 5, when God on the occasion of the transfiguration spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. Reminding all of us of the imperative to turn an open ear to Christ and to hear Him. But perhaps the opening verse in the Hebrew letter, Hebrews 1 verse 1, says that God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. As God speaks to us then by virtue of His Son, we will come to appreciate in John 12, just a few chapters from now, verses 48 and 49, that the Lord will therein say, he that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Thus the Logos, the word of the Lord, is so mighty and so lasting that it will be the very matter that shall be employed to serve as our judge what Christ will use as the basis for the accomplishment of judgment. We just noticed in the reading that Christ described as eternal, not restricted to mortality, not restricted to one who is bound or restricted by time. He's eternal. He was with God in the beginning. But if we have any question as to who that word refers to, might we quickly note verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This Logos, this Word, was made flesh. That clearly identifies the only member of the Godhead that has taken on the form of flesh. In the incarnation was the Christ. The Word was made flesh. And John emphasizes we beheld His glory. He wasn't just a ghost, an apparition. He was in the flesh, we beheld His glory. I suspect that those heretics who had given some credence to that kind of doctrine had no good response for the truth set forth in the gospel according to John. It is a remarkable thing then to appreciate as well, isn't it? That in this opening set of chapters, we notice He's called the Creator. Amazingly, in verse number 3, all things were made by Him. And without him was not anything made that was made. That refrain is not unique to John. Paul echoes it, doesn't he, in Colossians 1.16. For it says, By him, namely Christ, all things were fashioned and made. He upholds them all, and by his power they consist. This universe 
is upheld in the very regular nature of its motion, the power of its intricacies by the greatness of God through the Savior as he upholds it moment by moment by the word of his power. John, in fact, begins to address with greatness the divinity of Christ, doesn't he? Setting it forth in such a poetic and yet beautiful way. Of course, as one makes note of that, notice verse number 4, if you would, in him was life. We all treasure life, I think. We understand, at least in our better moments, what a grand blessing it is, and yet in him was life. Not to be discovered accidentally anywhere else, for it doesn't exist anywhere else. Life, the capability of living, that which makes it joyful and happy, that which provides it with a foundation of strength and might, is in Him and nowhere else. That helps us see again, doesn't it, in which Paul affirmed, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Paul, do you mean you're dead? Yes, the old man of sin and death and sorrow put to death, but I live by virtue of Christ. And he, in fact, is manifested by virtue of the decisions that you and I are able to make day by day, faithfully walking as an example of that which is good. As we understand further, though, there comes a sad note, doesn't it? The sadness exemplified in verse number 5. That light that Jesus is, and later he will expressly say, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. John 8 verse 12. And now, with that idea behind it, and the other things we've seen, verse 5 says, the darkness comprehended it not. The darkness. Though he came to provide light and life, the darkness comprehended it not. The verses that follow in verses 6 and following, does it not present in some ways an almost amazingly sad refrain? Especially verse number 11, He came into His own, and His own received Him not. The Lord came to offer the opportunity for life, and heaven, and joy, and redemption, and freedom from sin, and His own received Him not. They had a different preference. They liked something other than what he had to offer. That today reminds us still of the ter terrible tragedy of others that you and I know who have, to this point have rejected him. The offer has been extended to them. The invitation by Christ has been set forth, and yet they have rejected him. Perhaps that reminds us of Romans 10:18, where therein it says, They have not all obeyed the gospel. One can almost imagine a tear rolling down the cheek of Paul when he said that. The Roman brethren, and yet he, Christ came that they might have opportunity for salvation, and yet they have not all obeyed the gospel. Might we see in the book of John the urgency, the loveliness, the greatness of what Christ has come to offer. And as we can see near the bottom of that screen, when it says in verse 11 that his own received him not... By the time we get to the book's end, we will know the severity of that rejection. For those that were his own, the Jews, the Lord, after all, was born a Jew. His father and mother alike all came through the Hebrew ancestry and nationality. He came into his own. His own put him to death. His own nailed him to a cross. His own begged for a robber and, in fact, a murderer to be released 
and to crucify the life and to crucify the one. They're going to cry that out before this book is done. And in fact, with exclamation, they'll say, Crucify him. Crucify him. When Pilate, in fact, asked, Well, what should I then do with Christ? They had no hesitancy. They didn't, in fact, wait for a moment, but they urged with great vehemence and anger in their voice, Put him to death. Despite the fact Pilate said, I found no cause in him worthy of death. Pilate will wash his hands of the matter, but that doesn't stop the anger and the blood, if you will, that flows from their mouths as they desire this one whom they hated to be put to death. As the book of John rolls forward, we can perhaps also see some very interesting things that chapter 1 reminds us of. No one can question what a wonderful instrument John the Baptist was, but John the Apostle in this opening chapter leaves us no question, John the Baptist was not that light. In fact, the language of verse 6 reads as follows, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. <clears throat> As the work of John is specifically set forth in this book, he in chapter 5 verse 35 will be called a burning and shining light. He will be emphasized as one who in fact did great work in terms of saying, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world, John 1.29. But yet John tells us he was not that light. He came to bear witness of that light, to direct men's attention to the light. Today, you and I, in fact, strive to do the same by virtue of our life to direct attention to the light. The greatness of truth, we understand, is not to be found in mortal man as if you and I are able to come up with it or discover it or are the originators of it. Jesus said, I am the truth, John fourteen six. John the Baptist came to bear witness of the light. It might be fair then to make a few comments and notes as we conclude our study of the prologue of the book of John tonight. I've listed just a few notes there that seem to leap off the page to us out of these opening verses of this book. First of all, may we not see in verse number 12, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name but as many as received him. That directly implies does that Jesus doesn't force himself on anyone. It says as many as received him. He extends that lovely and dramatic invitation still, doesn't he? He will not force you or me or anyone else to be a follower of him. He will plead. He will set forth the truth as to what He accomplished for us and He will then leave it to your reason and mine to appreciate that that's what we need to do, ought to do, had better do, but He won't force Himself upon us. It has well been stated that every member of the Lord's army is a volunteer. We all have made the decision to serve beneath the banner of the cross, to serve beneath the leadership of our captain, Hebrews 2 verse 10, and to march following his orders unto everlasting life. Notice the power to receive him. 
we should be ever thankful for that opportunity that we have and to not shirk those responsibilities to respond to that extended invitation he has made and to in fact receive him but in addition notice yet another lesson that we might extract and draw from these opening comments in John 1 verse 16 the text reads and of his fullness have all we received and grace for grace the world is such a different place now and even after the coming of the Lord compared to what it was before for again he brought light and he brought life so much different than what the Old Testament had to offer in any way as the Lord highlighted the true nature of compassion and concern how much of mankind has been benefited with hospitals and various treatments and things that are in some way at least indirectly related to the blessing of Jesus. He has truly transformed this earth. If only the earth in its absolute specific would turn and obediently follow Him. Inasmuch as it says that we all have received of His fullness. That word fullness relates to the nature and the character of Jesus. What He stood for. The type individual He was. The nature of His linkage to heaven the power of what he is able to transform in the lives of people. He really does bring a metamorphosis, doesn't he? Inasmuch as he is able to transform and change in language like Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, where Paul said, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world. But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The matter directly stated of transformation, isn't it? But notice yet another. There is in verse 17 a rather intriguing description that reads as follows. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. We ought to be careful and not read into that more than what the sacred text says. There, for instance, might be some tempted to say that in light of that text, that then means that neither grace nor truth came by Moses and that furthermore, law does not come by Christ. That's not what the text says. That's reading into it what is not there. In other words, that text is not to say that there was no grace nor truth beneath the law of Moses. And it doesn't say that there's no law beneath the character of Christ. For after all, we do well remember that there is law spoken of in the New Testament for our era, isn't it? Galatians 6 verse 2, 1 Corinthians 9 21, just to name two. And as we well recall, that's merely asserts that there was an extreme difference in God's dealing with the human family after the coming of Christ compared to what there was before. We do in this era have the fullness of God's grace extended, do we not? The absolute greatness of it as exemplified by the giving of the Son of God. No sacrifice of an animal in the Old Testament could even come close to availing the human family of what Christ's blood was able to bring. That kind of distinction just highlights the thrust and emphasis of the nature of God's grace as exemplified now and the fullness and absolute nature of truth that was not here before. Doesn't that lead us back to that key verse again? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
under the Old Testament, the Lord hadn't come. The absolute perfection and purity of God's representation, the truth, if you please, to that point had not absolutely in its fullness come for human redemption. But now it has. Perhaps one other remark. In verse number 18, the closing verse of our study tonight, John again writing roughly five and a half to perhaps six decades after the sacrifice, after the crucifixion of Jesus, he said, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And that immediately puts to rest a number of false doctrines that have, in fact, been able to remain even until our day. But that is a rather strong proof against them, isn't it? It reminds us that at the time John wrote, which is again many decades after the crucifixion of Jesus, at that moment no man had seen God at any time telling us about the existence of that Hadean realm, and that that is where the departed spirits, in fact, reside. They do not go to heaven immediately at death. There is this place, the Hadean realm, in which they reside, and only following the day of judgment are they admitted by the lovely grace of God into the everlasting folds of heaven evermore. The explanation and the power, then, of what Christ has brought reminds us of some concluding thoughts to our lesson this evening. We have seen the divinity of Jesus set forth in such dramatic ways. And amongst those ideas, I think in the book of John, we have already seen his divinity and his deity set forth in unanswerable ways. And the blessedness of this gospel account will highlight for us his personal interest in each and every one of us and his desire for you and me to be right with him. He will bring life to you and to me. He does offer that in greatness to us. And of course, he, you and I must receive it. And that we will use as the closing question. Have you received the life that he has to offer? That reception, again, must be a volitional choice upon your part. He won't force you to respond. He won't make you. He won't, in fact, knock you on the head and force you to confess and be baptized. He won't come to you in a dream and, in fact, lead you down the aisle despite anything that you to the otherwise might wish to do. It must be your choice, and it must be your decision. There certainly is a congregation of individuals longing for your response tonight if that's the need of your life. If you have become a Christian at some former day and have known the life that the Lord has to offer but you haven't been faithful to that calling, we would urge you. We would, in fact, strongly invite you to come. We, by prayer, could pray upon your behalf for strength, for forgiveness. If you have not become a Christian, though, you need to begin the journey tonight. Notice he again said in verse 12, that to those that believe on him, you have the power to become the sons of God. If you believe, you need to complete that aspect of obedience, and in that way you would be a son of God. Galatians 3, verses 26 and 7. Tonight, if we could be of assistance to one or more in your public response to the gospel, let the book of John encourage you tonight to do that while together we stand and while we sing.